Hello, and welcome to Dissecting Philosophy with Dr. MacDonald. In this episode, I'll be discussing and reading the sections of The Self-Overcoming and of The Sublime Men in Nietzsche's Thus Spoke Zarathustra. And I'll also have a discussion of the character Cersei Lannister in Game of Thrones, as well as Patrick Bateman in American Psycho to accompany the sections. So let's get started. Of self-overcoming. What urges you on and arouses your ardour, you wisest of men? Do you call it will to truth? Will to the conceivability of all being. That is what I call your will. You first want to make all being conceivable. For, with a healthy mistrust, you doubt whether it is in fact conceivable. But it must bend and accommodate itself to you. Thus, will your will have it. It must become smooth and subject to the mind as the mind's mirror and reflection. That is your entire will, you wisest men. It is a will to power, and that is so even when you talk of good and evil, and of the assessment of values. You want to create the world before which you can kneel. This is your ultimate hope and intoxication. The ignorant, to be sure, the people, they are like a river down which a boat swims, and in the boat, solemn and disguised, sit the assessments of value. You put your will and your values upon the river of becoming. What the people believe to be good and evil betrays to me an ancient will to power. It was you, wisest men, who put such passengers in this boat and gave them splendor and proud names. You and your ruling will. Now the river bears your boat along. It has to bear it. It is of small account if the breaking wave foams and angrily opposes its keel. It is not the river that is your danger and the end of your good and evil, you wisest men. It is that will itself, the will to power, the unexhausted, procreating life will. But that you may understand my teaching about good and evil, I shall relate to you my teaching about life and about the nature of all living creatures. I have followed the living creature. I have followed the greatest and smallest paths that I might understand its nature. I caught its glance in a hundredfold mirror when its mouth was closed, that its eye might speak to me. And its eye did speak to me. But whenever I found living creatures, there too I heard the language of obedience. All living creatures are obeying creatures. And this is the second thing. He who cannot obey himself will be commanded. That is the nature of living creatures. But this is the third thing I heard, that commanding is more difficult than obeying. And not only because the commander bears the burden of all those who obey, and that this burden can easily crush him. In all commanding, there appeared to me an experiment and a risk, and the living creature always risks himself when he commands. Yes, even when he commands himself, then also must he make amends for his commanding. He must become judge and avenger and victim of his own law. How has this come about? Thus I asked myself. What persuades the living creature to obey? and to command, and to practice obedience, even in commanding. 
Listen now to my teaching, you wisest men. Test in earnest whether I have crept into the heart of life itself and down to the roots of its heart. Where I found a living creature, there I found will to power. And even in the will of the servant, I found the will to be master. So kicking off the section then, Nietzsche talked about truth and the whole aspect of a will to truth. So in order to understand that, we need to go into a little bit about what exactly happens when philosophy tries to attain truth and arrive at truth. So whenever philosophy tries to have a truth, it's not something that's normally can be called into question. And so Descartes is a really good example here in which you have Descartes' meditations in which you have in meditation one, Descartes raises skepticism and doubt about the various different ways we think about our experiential knowledge and knowledge in general that can be called into question. What's the purpose of all this is to lead us into meditation two, to start from a fresh basis in order for us to arrive at the truth which is absolute and cannot be called into question. And that, of course, is the famous saying, cogitio ergo sum, I think therefore I am, and the whole establishment of the cogito in meditation too. So from this we can see that traditionally within philosophy, what truth tries to do is firstly identify problems and get rid of any doubt or calling into question, or skepticism about a specific idea. And so then we move away from simply an opinion towards something that's universal. And so you can equally have this argument in ethics, let's say, where we can have lots of different ideas and opinions about what a good action is and what a just action is and over time of course you can say within different civilizations and societies all have their own varying ideas of what good is and what evil is and so on and so from all this then you move into the much more general aspect about of course moving from subjectivity in each individual's opinions to the more general move what's the good things about what people say here what's the bad things what's the problems and then eventually your aim of course is hopefully get to the universal point they say well regardless of what culture i'm in regardless what society regardless what time period this truth will always uphold universally concretely regardless of any critical opinions that may arise about him. And that's why mathematics is hinged upon is such an important subject and used quite a lot within philosophy as an example for truth, because that's ultimately what philosophers like to do, at least in a traditional sense, is to arrive at those mathematical types of truths that are absolute, unquestionable, and always true, such as just the easy examples of 2 plus 2 equals 4 will always be true regardless of what time period we're in and society. And of course, from all that, we could say, at least within 
philosophy in a traditional sense. We're not just going to be talking about mathematics. What is all this establishment going to do, of course? Arrive at deep truths about things, establishment about knowledge, about ethics, and so on. And so, then we come back around to what Nietzsche says in this section. And what Nietzsche raises as a criticism is that the very idea of truth isn't something that's objective, isn't something that's absolute or pure. Why is this the case? Because whatever truth it is that we're trying to establish is all dependent upon the very psychology of the philosopher or the person that's created this truth in the first place. And it's that sentence, but it must bend and accommodate itself to you. Thus will your will have it. It must become smooth and subject to the mind as the mind's mirror and reflection. And so it then depends upon the psychology of the person. What exactly does this mean? Is that ultimately the truth is going to be bent towards how a specific individual sees the world and how an individual wants the world to be. So there's that sort of sense of a dissatisfaction with the world itself. And ultimately, let's say Descartes, for instance, is going to want to bend and manipulate and shape the world to how he wants the world to fit to his own version of how he'd like it. And so what we then have is, as he says, that fitting in towards a person's desire or as his concept for it is, of course, for Nietzsche's concept of will to power, which of course doesn't mean power in the political sense, but rather the desire process that's within us. So it's precisely that truth is a manifestation of our desire. And so what's interesting as well is that when Nietzsche is critical of the aspect of it focuses entirely on your mind and the structure in which your mind applies to the world, it's all a criticism of German idealism and the popular philosophy within that time period that Nietzsche is writing as well. And the big person that argues for the whole approach that everything in the world is a reflection of our mind and a mind structure is Hegel in his book Phenomenology of Spirit, in which you have a comparable relation into Descartes where you have the whole initial relation into our experiential knowledge. And then from all that, you then realize slowly as you go through the phenomenology of spirit that actually how we understand everything in the first place for Hegel is through the very structures of our mind that's been placed on the world itself and not through the direct sensory experience. And so knowledge itself then becomes an engagement with thought structures. And then we have a move in the section to the whole argument to say, well, why is there this whole need for a will to truth in the first place? Why does the philosopher 
need to have this whole establishment of this absolute proof and so on. And then it goes into another psychological aspect, of course, is that there's the whole commander and servant relationship that's going on here. That is to say that he's going to argue fundamentally within us as a human species that we have this whole relationship between subservience and wanting to command at the same time over a set of people. And so we have Nietzsche building upon the whole idea of herd mentality here in the sense of, well, we have specifically an explanation here as to why groups of people think the way that they do. And he's to say, well, it's a given idea here because he who cannot obey himself will be commanded. That is to say, of course, if you're not in the whole idea of critical thinking and establishing the whole basis for your own ideas and beliefs, if you have no firm beliefs yourself, if you have no strong opinions, then ultimately Nietzsche says, well, you are ripe for being commanded because your opinions and your ideas and your beliefs precisely won't be your own, but you will be ultimately the conduit for someone else's opinions and beliefs. So we then see that philosophy actually wants to be not on the side of those who obey, but rather those who want to command. Because following on from that, of course, if you then have your own opinion and your own belief, then you're going to be able to seduce and manipulate people who don't have an opinion or belief or an idea about something. And then they will become ultimately a conduit for your ideas and opinions. But then being in a commanding position, of course, he says is not easy. In fact, it's more difficult than simply obeying because then you have to become judge, avenger and victim of your own law in the sense of you have to then almost be like a courtroom judge and to like pass judgment upon other people who don't fit within your view of things and how you view the world. And of course, then punish those people, ridicule them and so on. And then you also become a victim as well, as he says. So it's not the fact that you're then going to be all powerful, but actually now what you're going to say is precisely going to be flawed, fragile, and you're going to have those that oppose you and might completely overthrow you in the end as well, and your opinion. Continuing on then, the will of the weaker persuades it to serve the stronger. Its will wants to be master over those weaker still. This delight alone it is unwilling to forgo, and as the lesser surrenders to the greater, that it may have delight and power over the least of all. So the greatest, too, surrenders, and for the sake of power, stakes life. The devotion of the greatest is to encounter risk and danger, and play dice for death. And where sacrifice and service and loving glances are, there, too, is will to be master. There the weaker steals by secret paths into the castle, and even into the hearts of the more powerful, and steals the power. 
and life itself told me the secret. Behold, it said, I am that which must be overcome itself again and again. To be sure, you call it will to procreate, or impulse towards a goal, towards the higher, more distant, more manifold. But all this is one and one secret. I would rather perish than renounce this one thing, and truly, where there is perishing and falling of leaves, behold, there life sacrifices itself for the sake of power, that I have to be struggle and becoming and goal and conflict of goals. Ah, he who divines my will surely divines too, along what crooked paths it has to go. Whatever I create, and however much I love it, soon I will have to oppose it and my love. Thus will my will have it, and you too, enlightened men, are only a path and a footstep of my will. Truly my will to power walks with the feet of your will to truth. He who shot the doctrine of will to existence at truth certainly did not hit the truth. This will does not exist, for what does not exist cannot will. But that which is in existence, how could it still want to come into existence? Only where life is, there is also will, not will to life, but, so I teach you, will to power. The living creature values many things higher than life itself, yet out of this evaluation itself speaks the will to power. Thus life once taught me, and with this teaching do I solve the riddle of your hearts, you wisest men. Truly I say to you, unchanging good and evil does not exist. From out of themselves they must overcome themselves again and again. You exert power with your values and doctrines of good and evil. You assessors of values, and this is your hidden love and the glittering, trembling and overflowing of your souls. But a mightier power and a new overcoming grow from out of your values. Egg and eggshell break against them. And he who has to be a creator in good and evil truly has first to be a destroyer and break values. Thus the greatest evil belongs with the greatest good. This, however, is the creative good. Let us speak of this, you wisest men, even if it is a bad thing. To be silent is worse. All suppressed truths become poisonous. And let everything that can break upon our truth break. There is many a house still to build. Thus spoke Zarathustra. And so we have a continuation on of the discussion between the whole aspect of commanding and obedience. And here we have the addition to all that, that those who are obedient, of course, are going to be cunning and conniving and devious in how they themselves try to attain power because not only are they going to be subservient and do whatever their master tells them or boss and so on but they're going to try and work the system so they can climb it and therefore attain more control and more power for themselves and thereby continually seek more and more power and to have more and more command over others so it's quite a Machiavellian style of idea that we have coming out in this discussion. Although Nietzsche himself doesn't explicitly reference Machiavelli, there's that very strong connection because 
the whole idea of Machiavelli is, of course, precisely having your own devious cunning plan and for you to try and make everything work for you and your own selfish interests. And that's perfectly fine as long as, of course, your public image looks absolutely fantastic in that model. So the whole thing about Machiavelli, of course, his big book being the prince in which he wrote in order to get a job, which he, unfortunately for him, didn't get the job out of, is ultimately you can go and do devious things, manipulate the whole system in order to make it work for you, in order to gain more power, as long as you look good to the public and have a good public image. Because as long as you have a good public image, people will think you're great, fantastic individual, but behind closed doors, of course, you're not. And and there's great examples you can have with politicians in general, throughout history and so on, all to have roped into this whole idea of being Machiavellian. But from Nietzsche's whole argument here, we're saying, well, there's something fundamentally going on with us as a human species where we have this whole sort of Machiavellian style of psychology within us that we have this whole command obedience model and in which those who obey themselves are going to want to therefore gain more power as well. And then enters into a really interesting quote as well that's also italicized in the text. When life enters the discussion, in which life says, Behold, it said, I am that which must be overcome itself again and again. And so there's kind of that irony at work. As soon as life enters the picture, it must be overcome. Why is that the case? Because life is a thing that works on a cycle, of course, cycle of life and death, cycle of the seasons, where you move through the whole thing of summer, spring, autumn, winter, and so on, and again and again. And even sort of Nietzsche touches upon that, where nature needs that whole idea in the first place of perishing and falling leaves, as he says, life there sacrifices itself for power to have the whole emphasis upon life itself. But in a different way, of course, because life is sort of reinvigorating itself so it can therefore carry on its best interest to, let's say, allow pollination to occur for the type of flower it is the next year and so on. And it's a very much different idea. And this, of course, then builds up into the further argument for will to power and those desiring processes within us, because he's going to say, well, like nature that desires the whole cyclical process to occur every single year in order to make sure life occurs in the world, we ourselves are, cannot separate ourselves out from that system, but we like to do that a lot, of course. He says, there's so much times in which we as a human species precisely like to create higher ideas above ourselves. One idea of that is ethical models, ethical principles. What exactly is happening there is because ethics you can argue, would be necessary in order to get control of our animality and our desiring processes. And another example is religious ideas in which we have metaphysical concepts such as the soul or God 
And why are these higher than us, of course, is because that they're metaphysical, so therefore they're pure, they're eternal, they're timeless. They cannot be affected by anything in the world. They can't degenerate in any way. They can't die. And so automatically it's something that's much higher and greater than what we are as a species. And then we have the absolutely fantastic line, unchanging good and evil does not exist. And why is it such a fantastic line? Is because it challenges the very foundations of ethics there. Because from ethics you'd want to have an unchanging idea of good and evil because then you can say regardless of what time period we're in regardless what society everybody can universally and fundamentally agree upon this is an idea that we can wholeheartedly say is good and bad and from all that you can get an absolute concrete ethics out of it in which everybody can fundamentally agree upon and from all that you can then base a whole reward punishment system on Nietzsche's argument of course the opposite of that to say well it's something that cannot be unchanging and an easy example of that is of course to say well why is the idea of good and evil something that changes and we can see that from history in which you can then go into different historical examples and specifically different time periods in which one idea is held up as good in one time period and then the exact same idea is held as bad later and then that whole continual flux and change that occurs but he also says these ideas change over time because of our desire for change in the first place to challenge these ideas and then allowing for a whole new idea to replace it of course that itself is a great example let's say when specifically there is an idea that something is good and that is shown to be completely harmful and bad for us that's going to be a desire for us there that's going to be our whole desiring process will to power he's going to say that's going to allow for all that newness to occur and for us to get rid of all that poisonous outlook and approach an easy example there of course is just to say well in the 50s there was the whole argument that smoking was good for you and then we have the whole desire to challenge that as an idea and now we get into contemporary society's idea of smoking is something that's harmful so we have this whole metaphor then on a deeper level and the way in which our ideas and structures of knowledge work is like that of precisely the way in which life cycles work in the world it's a fantastic whole image that comes out of this and to say well ideas themselves have to be overcome just like the fact that life itself overcomes every single year that'll happen with ideas too they're not something that's to be held up in any given way or to be idolized or should be thought of as absolutely perfect no we don't do that with the world why should we do that with ideas and we also have that fantastic line whatever i create and however much i love it soon i'll have to oppose it in my love 
Because it's precisely that whole idea again that whatever we create, we put our whole feelings into it, absolutely everything, blood, sweat and tears. You adore what you've done. But of course, that's a reflection of you and your ideas at a given time period. What happens to you as an individual over time? Precisely your ideas, your beliefs, your opinions are going to change over time as well. That's the whole point that Nietzsche is trying to make us think about. Surely you don't want to be static in your beliefs and your opinions. And you can have the whole challenge of yourself as an individual in your whole knowledge as well. If you only you can look at your younger self, what would you say? That sort of question. And then rounding off this section as well, you have a fantastic argument to allow for a very democratic view for everybody's ideas and opinions. Even if it's something bad, he says, lit it out. The worst thing to do would be to suppress them all in the first place because it becomes poisonous. Because what he's touching upon there, of course, is as soon as you start to suppress ideas, then you start to move into a whole totalitarian and fascist style of government and your own belief system as well to not allow the opposite opinion from how you think don't become poisonous always allow yourself to be open allow for that other person to challenge you and this is how we're able to crack the whole idea of things have to be static as he says because what allows again the whole movement for change and things to be overcome is our creativity as well it's our creative answers to the problems that are raised when we see that what we've upheld is in fact harmful and poisonous for us or that things just need to change and need to be restructured and we need to make it work better so i thought of a great example for this section would be a discussion of the character of Cersei Lannister from George R. R. Martin's Game of Thrones. And there's a great wee article on Cersei Lannister from the website fandom.com. And the article is called The Psychology of Game of Thrones' is Cersei Lannister by Drea Letamendi. So this is a little snippet as well from the article. Maintaining image is central to Cersei Lannister's personality. Filled by a desire to maintain the wealthiest, most powerful, and indisputably relevant figure in Westeros, Cersei goes to great lengths to orchestrate and maintain her status. At her best, she's an incredibly self-aware, realizing that alongside ineffectual leaders like King Baratheon, her presence demands intimidation and reveals the weaknesses of others. Quite tactfully and steadily, Cersei uses people's fears response to control them. Sentencing Sansa's direwolf to death, though Lady, which is the name of the direwolf, had nothing to do with the attack on Cersei's son, Joffrey, is our first exposure to Queen Cersei's unforgiving demonstration of power as a tool of manipulation. After arranging King Baratheon's death in what will be perceived as a hunting accident, Cersei's truest form emerges. She is what is known as a vulnerable narcissist. For starters, narcissists typically come across as overtly grandiose, effusing a sense of entitlement and superiority over others. Along with these features is a presence of egocentrism, 
which is the inability to untangle one's perspective from objective reality, creating a skewed perception of importance. Cersei sees the world only from being in the centre of it. She judges her personal value only in relation to others. Thus, she needs to devalue them, setting herself apart from cripples, bastards and broken things, namely Tyrion in her eyes, upholds her sense of self as perfect and pure. And so what's great about Game of Thrones as well as a whole is it really fits into this whole scheming Machiavellian aspect as well as the whole psychology of commanding and obedience as well as having more power and wanting more power to therefore have more control over other people and all the different characters that all sort of play the game of who exactly has the most power and of course Cersei's the one right at the top of that being queen is that satisfying enough for her of course no because she wants total power and she wants to rule over absolutely everything and What's so interesting as well and what we have is such a fantastic connection into the section on Nietzsche is what we have then is the creation of one's own ideas and reflection of your own personality in order for you then to build and create the world and manipulate it to how you see fit and therefore everything in the world is going to be a reflection of precisely the psychological makeup of who's ever in charge and you could also go into a really interesting sense of here of as well historically when we have the whole idea of when we have the victors ultimately writing the history books to always make themselves look fantastic then you can say well from a historical sense that precisely we end up in very much that idea of how we view a situation is all based upon the very psychology and makeup of whoever it is that's writing which for a great part of history is, of course is white european aristocrats what about everybody else that doesn't fall into that category but also what we have is that sense of power is ultimately a fleeting thing within game of thrones as well because who's ever in power such as Cersei Lannister is always going to be that game of somebody's always going to want to take her place and ultimately be in that position and in Game of Thrones you have all the different houses and families of people all playing the game of how much power can they obtain and of course one big character is Daenerys Targaryen who is the last remaining survivor of the previous royal family that was in place who then wants her position back and then she is of course has her own side story about what happens and so on but it's all just interesting to have the insight and sort of going underneath really in the whole outlook of how very fragile our understanding of things are because things are always continually overcome ideas are always continually overcome and it's only a good valid form of an opinion 
as long as it's upheld is an opinion and it just goes to show as well that not everybody that we uphold in a given society in a given time period will be those that we uphold for all time because then ultimately we can arrive at a completely different conception of what society is altogether and of course that's one of the dangers from the whole Nietzsche aspect as well we can end up in this whole not utopian idea but rather the fact if we move further and further out away from creativity allowing newness novelty difference democratic approach to opinions if we all lose all that then precisely we have a very nightmarish version of the future in the first place but that's also what's so fantastic is that even if it does somehow end up in a nightmarish version of a dystopian future through whatever movie example you can go to let's say mad max in which everything's in a very much desert-like existence and so on very horrible then you could say well that's okay in the short term because it doesn't always have to be like that and we can always have the desire and aspiration and want to change and from all that of course then we have the whole aspect of the way in which we ourselves and our ideas and this fragility then reflect nature again and the fragility of the world itself moving on to the next section then of the sublime men still is the bottom of my sea who could guess that it hides sportive monsters imperturbable is my depth but it glitters with swimming riddles and laughter today i saw a sublime man a solemn man a penitent man of the spirit oh how my soul laughed at his ugliness with upraised breast and in the attitude of a man drawing in breath thus he stood there the sublime man and silent hung with ugly truths the booty of his hunt and rich in torn clothes many thorns too hung on him but i saw no rose as yet he has not learned of laughter and beauty this huntsman returned gloomily from the forest of knowledge he returned home from the fight with wild beasts but a wild beast still gazes out of his seriousness a beast that has not been overcome he stands there like a tiger about to spring but i do not like these ten souls my taste is hostile towards all these withdrawn men and do you tell me friends that there is no dispute over taste and tasting but all life is dispute over taste and tasting taste that is at the same time weight and scales and weigher and woe to all living creatures that want to live without dispute over weight and scales and weigher if he grew weary of his sublimity this sublime man only then would his beauty rise up and only then will i taste him and find him tasty and only if he turns away from himself will he jump over his own shadow and jump in truth into his own sunlight he has sat all too long in the shadows the cheeks of the penitent of the spirit have grown pale 
he has almost starved on his expectations. There is still contempt in his eye, and disgust lurks around his mouth. He rests now, to be sure, but he's never yet lain down in the sunlight. He should behave like the ox, and his happiness should smell of the earth, and not of contempt for the earth. I should like to see him as a white ox, snorting and bellowing as he goes before the plough, and his bellowing too should loud all earthly things. His countenance is still dark, his hand's shadow plays upon it, the sense of his eyes too is overshadowed, his deed itself is still the shadow upon him, the hand darkens the doer, he has still not overcome his deed. To be sure, I love in him the neck of the ox, but now I want to see the eye of the angel too. He must unlearn his heroic will too. He should be an exalted man and not only a sublime one. The ether itself should raise him up, the willless one. He has tamed monsters, he has solved riddles, but he should also redeem his monsters and riddles. He should transform them into heavenly children. So for Nietzsche then, what kicks off this action is this whole sense of needing to overcome your own animality for the sublime man. And what exactly is the sublime man? It's simply just those people who have a high sense of moral superiority or let's say spiritual superiority over all others. So let's say they're those people who adopt a certain ethical principles and models and use them to sort of then judge others and their behavior and how they act. And as he says, following on from how ethics works as well, it's all to get a sense of control over our, our own animality as well, what do you do? You go into the forest, you go into the woods and so on. And then from all that, you're meant to come out much greater than what you were. But as he says, with that model, you're meant to have that whole sense of I'm going to be higher than my own animality. But it's that tongue in cheek nature that Nietzsche has as well. They think they're somehow morally superior to everybody else, but I still see a tiger ready to pounce in their eyes, ultimately to say, well, automatically, if you try to get rid of your own animality, then that's just going to manifest itself in another way. And in the way it's going to do so is going to be through the judgment of other people. Because, as he says in the last section, we can't get rid of our desiring processes of desire within our own bodies. And so what ultimately we have, instead of a desire for change or a whole desire for a new model or structure to take place or desire for creative act to take place, we have precisely then a desire to punish and a desire to judge. But in doing so, Nietzsche says, well, what exactly happens when you hold this sense of moral superiority over others or you hold this ethical principle or model above everything else suddenly then he says well you get rid of the whole dispute about taste because suddenly then you say well this certain thing is absolute and Nietzsche's counter argument to that is of course well 
life is precisely that dispute over taste and taste and because there's always different approaches different opinions other than the one that the person has wholeheartedly taken on and is thought as superior to all other different perspectives and outlooks and it's something is easy is just to use the basic examples as well of somebody fundamentally and wholeheartedly agreeing with only eating one specific nutritional approach to their life let's say they become really really involved in eating pasta and then wholeheartedly tries to conform everyone else in their life to eating pasta as well then we get of course the point about all that and the importance of taste well there is other different foods out there out with pasta and it's that fantastic line woe to all living creatures that want to live without dispute over weight and scales and wear the whole idea of that is what life is is this rich diversity that we have and the absolute hell of existence if we only just had that specific one approach or one specific thing that we could only eat for the rest of our lives how miserable would that be even if it was this the thing that we absolutely adored as well eventually you'd become sick of it and you'd think well god i could really do with something else now but it's like nope nope you think you're being salsabiri here you're gonna have to stick with that pasta and then that follows on if only then they become weary of that sense of self-superiority then they would of course find their own beauty within them rise up and have the whole enjoyment of the world and so that's why you have then Nietzsche saying if only they could be more like an ox in the sense of animals have it so much more joyful in that given situation because there's no judgment model for a whole animal of course and what they do is just contently go about the world eating procreating and so on but the main thing is aren't animals so just happy and content with the world there's that enjoyment that they have with the world and everything in it and it's that simplicity as well it's almost Nietzsche's saying here if only they were turned back to just focusing on what was necessary and all the little simple things that actually makes up life in the first place just like the ox running about in the field enjoying itself that's what they need to get back to rather than this whole sense of self-superiority with this whole model that they have ultimately they would be much happier as a person continuing on then his knowledge has not yet learned to smile and to be without jealousy his gushing passion has not yet grown calm in beauty Truly his longings should be silenced and immersed not in satiety but in beauty. The generosity of the magnanimous man should include gracefulness. With his arm laid across his head, that is how the hero should rest. That is also how he should overcome his rest. But it's precisely to the hero that beauty is the most difficult of all things. Beauty is unattainable to all violent wills a little more a little less precisely that is much here here that is the most of all to stand with relaxed muscles and unharnessed wills that is the most difficult thing for all of you you sublime men when power grows gracious and descends into the visible i call such descending beauty 
and I desire beauty from no one as much as I desire it from you, you man of power. May your goodness be your ultimate self-overpowering. I believe you capable of any evil, therefore I desire you the good. In truth, I have often laughed at the weaklings who think themselves good because their claws are blunt. You should aspire to the virtue of the pillar. The higher it rises, the fairer and more graceful it grows, but inwardly harder and able to bear more weight. Yes, you sublime man, you too shall one day be fair and hold the mirror before your own beauty. Then your soul will shudder with divine desires, and there will be worship even in your vanity. This, indeed, is the secret of the soul. Only when the hero has deserted the soul does there approach it in dreams, the superhero. Thus spoke Zarathustra. So then Nietzsche talks about beauty and how it's hard for this sublime man to achieve beauty. And what's interesting is the twist that Nietzsche's done here, because traditionally beauty is something that is to be upheld as without any resemblance to our bodily desires whatsoever. And so there shouldn't be any relation into food or sex whatsoever when we come to the idea of beauty. So it should be something that's ultimately pure. And a very rough sort of definition of that goes into Immanuel Kant's idea of beauty in his big book, Critique of Judgment. It should be ultimately something that's pure and therefore you can say that's something that's beautiful. Such as a picturesque sort of landscape, the scenery, the trees, and so on. There's no bodily desires going on there about landscapes. But for Nietzsche, on the other hand, he's saying, well, beauty has a relation back into the world. Because beauty ultimately is like the ox in the field running around. The ox is quite happy. And therefore, isn't that something that's beautiful as well? And why beauty is something that's so unattainable to the sublime man is through that sense of self-superiority, is that continual need to judge others and their lifestyle and their choices through their ethical principles that they have. Then, of course, they become very anxious and their own sort of psychology about things, continually worrying about other people, that they're not following the correct lifestyle. If only they followed your lifestyle and your model, then wouldn't that be much better for everyone else? But there's also this sense as well that Nietzsche has, is that when you have upheld such an idea or such a principle to the nth degree, and you are arguing for it so hard that ultimately it's one of those metaphors as well. The more you raise it up, the more it's ultimately going to collapse on itself at some point. That you can't ever hold up one given idea for all time to be always perfect because that idea itself will crumble at some point. It's not something that's going to be everlasting in any given way. There's going to be people that challenge it. There's going to be different ideas. 
And that's ultimately going to be something that's going to make it crumble. That whole pillar metaphor that sort of he has there, you aspire to be the virtue of the pillar. The higher it rises, the fairer and more graceful it grows, but inwardly harder and able to bear more weight. It's sort of that joke as well that it's not going to be able to bear the weight at some given point. It's just going to collapse in on itself. And then where will you be with your principle then? But that's absolutely fine as well, because Nietzsche says, because once we get out of all that, once we get back into life itself and the world, then we have a whole different sense of beauty and appreciation of the world and almost this sort of divine look upon life itself. As he says, once we get rid of all this, trying to create higher than ourselves, trying to uphold principles that's higher than ourselves, then we can actually reflect back upon life itself, the world itself, and then just realizing how fantastic all that is. And so a great example for this section, I thought, was to discuss the character Patrick Bateman from American Psycho, which is both a great book and also a movie from 2000. So just going to read the very briefest of the plot summary as well, not the whole thing. And this is from Wikipedia. In 1988, wealthy New York investment banker Patrick Bateman's life revolves around dining at trendy restaurants while keeping up appearances for his fiancée, Evelyn, and his circle of wealthy and shallow associates, most of whom he dislikes. Bateman describes the material accoutrements of his lifestyle, including his morning exercise, beautification routine, designer wardrobe, and expensive furniture. He also discusses his music collection in scholarly detail. Bateman and his associates flaunt their business cards in a display of vanity. Enraged by the superiority of his co-worker Paul Allen's card, Bateman murders a homeless man and his dog. At a Christmas party, Bateman makes plans to have dinner with Alan, who mistakes Bateman for another co-worker. Bateman gets Alan drunk and lures him back to his apartment. Whilst playing hip to be square, Bateman delivers a monologue to Alan about the artistic merits of the song, and then he murders Alan with a chrome axe. So that's enough of the plot as well to get into a nice little discussion of American Psycho. So we can see that... The whole idea of self-superiority definitely comes out with the character of Patrick Bateman. And through just his lifestyle, from the very rigid routine that he has as well, from everything from putting on a face mask to all the different beauty products that he uses, his whole working out regime and so on to keep his body looking good, his skin looking good. And then, of course, his apartment is immaculate as well. Of course, he lives in an expensive luxury apartment. And then everything that's all the furnishings as well. And everything's all designer and so on. And in the book, you have an incredibly detailed, just non-stop description of absolutely everything upon everything within his, his apartment. And all this, of course, is to get into the whole psychology and makeup of a person who has that superiority complex to say, well, everything that this person does 
through their own beauty regime and physical exercise and material possessions all reflect upon this whole sense of he thinks he's better than everyone else and to also not in just terms of thinking that you're therefore just better than someone else because you're wealthier and so on but even to the extent of wanting to be also better than his own friends and a great example of that of course is the business card scene from the movie in which you have quite hilariously as well them all pulling out these business cards and looking at them and then Patrick Bateman as a character as well begins to sweat and just the sight of these business cards is like oh my god it's eggshell white with raised lettering and there's all this whole sort of back and forth of therefore I'm a much more superior person than you because look how much better my business card is than yours which is of course the absurdity of the situation as well of that somehow a sense of superiority just comes down to something as simple and plain as a business card and of course the paranoia and the anxiety and everything like that as well into his whole sense of oh my god suddenly paul allen who is he as a guy to me he's suddenly living in a better apartment than me how did he manage to get one overlooking the park and i didn't oh my god and so what's so great about the nietzsche in this section as well is if they could only just take a pinch of the nietzsche and pour over patrick bateman as a character then you would see well suddenly if you got rid of all that sense of self-superiority the whole sense of not taking every little thing as a means to try and one-up other people and make yourself feel more superior to others if you get rid of all this and just focused upon the absolute bare basics of things then how much happier would he be as an individual as well as psychologically much better as an individual because of course he ends up is a complete psychopath through his own paranoia of his own sense of moral superiority to others and that's the whole point that Nietzsche wants to say as well if only Patrick Bateman could be more happier with just the simple basic things in life like the happy ox in the field then you wouldn't need to have that sense of continual paranoia anxiety thinking about how you're reflected upon in the eyes of other people and so on and so on and just overall just a much more healthier enjoyable life for oneself at the same time many thanks for listening to the episode i hope you enjoyed my discussion of the sections of self-overcoming and of the sublime men in nietzsche's thus spoke zarathustra feel free to check out my patreon page at patreon.com forward slash dissecting philosophy feel free to also drop me an email at my address dissecting philosophy at gmail.com and i can be also found on twitter at i am a rubber man many thanks for listening and i'll hope you'll join me next time